It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello, friends. We're in the midst of addressing the problem of evil and suffering in the world. This is no small task. Remember, we must distinguish between the logical-slash-intellectual problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. The logical-slash-intellectual problem of evil concerns how to give a rational explanation of God and evil. The emotional problem of evil concerns how to comfort or console those who are suffering and how to dissolve the emotional dislike people have of a God who would permit such evil. The intellectual problem of evil is in the province of the philosopher, whereas the emotional problem is in the province of the counselor. Even atheists have a sense that the world is basically a good place. Why would atheists come to that conclusion? It's like stepping on a solid bridge to cross over a chasm, all the while believing there is no such thing as a bridge. In the preface of Stealing from God by Frank Turek, Ravi Zacharias writes, I have had the privilege of traveling the globe for over 40 years. In nearly every setting, I have encountered an atheist who charges Christianity with being illogical, irrational, or worse, a poison to society. They borrow from the very worldview, Christianity. They disavow to legitimize their own worldview. Yet in our world, there is no shortage of evil, death, and tragedy caused by war, terrorism, pandemics, natural disaster, human weakness, or sheer evil. And always our natural inclination is to ask why. To the atheists, the presence of evil is a sword with a double edge. Where do they get the idea of evil? And how do they break its stranglehold? As I've said in episode 69, uh, in referring to an interaction between Zacharias and, and a student from Nottingham, the atheists cannot justify the existence of good and evil without smuggling in the moral argument for God. The questioner assumes the intrinsic worth of humanity in raising the question of evil, an assumption that is not warranted by his naturalistic or materialistic worldview. Here is the argument in a nutshell. Premise one. Every law has a lawgiver. 
this is obvious. Premise two, there is an objective moral law. Everyone will agree that it's objectively wrong to torture babies for the fun of it or to rape and murder little girls. Conclusion. Therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. But this conclusion puts the atheist in a dilemma. He doesn't want to allow the possibility of a lawgiver. Why? Because if he does, he grants not only a moral lawgiver, but also that there is good and evil, and a moral law too. Then it can be argued that this lawgiver is God. Thus the problem of evil, rather than a proof against God, is actually an argument for God. If there is no God, then there is no objective universal moral law by which to distinguish good and evil. But since all humans agree that good and evil are real distinctions, there must be a God. Moreover, besides this failure to eliminate God because of evil, the atheist's logical argument against God, given in episode 68, is flawed as it stands. The typical argument goes like this. Premise one. An all-good and omnipotent God exists. Premise two. Evil exists. The claim here is that these two premises imply a contradiction. Premise three. If God is omnipotent, he can destroy evil. Premise four. If God is all good, he wants to destroy evil. Therefore, the conclusion is, there is no all good omnipotent God. This argument fails for three reasons. First, because if, in fact, there is a contradiction, then the conclusion should be one of three consequences instead of just a single one, the non-existence of God. The other two possible consequences are either God exists but is not all good or that God exists but is not all powerful. The second flaw is that the premise should be that evil is not yet destroyed. Third, I will show soon that there is no contradiction between the premises one and two. Given that there is no contradiction between these two premises, the argument should be restated another way. Premise one, an all-good, all-powerful God exists. Premise two, if God is omnipotent, he can destroy evil. Premise three, if God is all-good, he wants to destroy evil. Premise four, evil is not yet destroyed. Therefore, the conclusion is, evil will be destroyed eventually. But then we have an argument that agrees with what theism claims that God will destroy evil at the end of human history. See Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15, chapter 21, verse 4, and chapter 22, verses 3 through 8, to determine how God plans to destroy evil. 
This argument is entirely consistent with what the Bible teaches. Now let's show that there is no contradiction between the two premises, God's existence and evil's existence. How can I do this? By adding a third premise as follows. God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil in the world. As long as this third premise is even possibly true, it shows that there is no logical contradiction between God's existence and the suffering in the world. So in order to refute that claim, the atheist would be forced to show that it is logically impossible for God to have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering in the world. And no atheist has ever been able to do that. A second response to the typical argument against God is that most atheists would consider Nietzsche and Dawkins as their high priests, with Bertrand Russell, Sigmund Freud, and Karl Marx as patron saints. But each of Nietzsche and Dawkins assert that there is no such thing as evil. Yet many atheists point to the fact of evil as an argument against God. But here is a fundamental fact. You can't have it both ways. You can't claim that if there is no God, then evil can't exist. And then turn around and use the existence of evil to attempt to show that there is no God. That's logical schizophrenia. In fact, the contrapositive of that former statement is the existence of evil implies that God exists. So the intellectual problem of evil boils down to the question, does evil exist or not? I think the answer is yes, and I think most people would agree. Then why would God allow evil to exist now? Perhaps he wants the maximum number of people to have the opportunity to come to him. Or maybe he wishes to maintain free will for humans or some other attribute beneficial to humanity. Or God may have a purpose that evil and suffering functions in such a way to accomplish that purpose. So the logical version of the problem of evil has been widely recognized as having no validity. The atheist has no leg to stand on. Does God use suffering purposefully? I think so. Let me give a few examples. The Apostle James writes in the New Testament, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience, and let patience have its perfect work, so that you might be spiritually mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's found in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, makes essentially the same point, that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Before Jesus was taken into custody, before the crucifixion, he made this point to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 21. 
Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has not come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer re remembers the anguish because of the joy that a human being has been born into the world. The famous orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Paul Brand, served his medical internship in London during the time when the German Luftwaffe bombing campaign called the Blitz pounded the city into rubble. Dr. Brand said, physical hardship was a constant companion, the focal point of nearly every conversation and front page headline. Yet, I have never lived among people so buoyant. Now I read that 60% of Londoners who live through the Blitz remember it as the happiest period of their lives. Brand adds, they suffered for a cause. There was a purpose in their suffering, defending their beloved country against an evil tyrant who wanted to destroy them. Similarly, in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl recounts his experiences in the four different Nazi concentration camps in the World War II and the school of therapy he invented to help people confront the question, what is the meaning of life? Frankl's father, mother, brother and his wife, all, excepting his sister, died in camps or were sent to the gas ovens. Every possession lost, every value destroyed, expecting extermination at any moment, suffering from bitter cold, extreme hunger and appalling brutality, how could he or anyone under similar circumstances find life worth living. Despite the horrifying conditions, Frankel observed that the prisoners who were the most likely to survive the concentration camp's brutality had specific psychological methods of resistance, rich inner lives, future-oriented goals, and discovery of meaning in their suffering. Hunger, humiliation, fear, and deep anger or injustice are rendered tolerable by closely guarded images of beloved persons, by religion, by a grim sense of humor, and even by glimpses of the beauties of nature like a sunset. But these moments of seeming respite do not establish the will to live unless they help the prisoner make a larger sense out of his apparently senseless suffering. Frankel is fond of quoting Nietzsche, who said, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. After all the familiar goals in life are snatched away, what alone remains is the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. This ultimate freedom 
takes on vivid significance in Frankel's story. The prisoners were only average people, but some, at least, by choosing to be worthy of their suffering, proved man's capacity to rise above his outward fate. Hopefully I've given you much to ponder about as we continue this journey together. Remember, exercise daily, walk with God. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.